What do marriage relationships, business contracts, and handshake deals all have in common? There are various kinds of agreements, and the biblical word for those kinds of agreements is bedith. Bedith, especially in Scripture, is about those agreements, relationships that we have with God. In Scripture, covenants define our relationship with the Almighty. Now, when we learn that the Ten Commandments and the entire law of God, 613 commands total in the Torah, are a guide, intended to be a guide, about how to live in covenant relationship with God, we may think, wow, the burden of establishing that relationship and nurturing that covenant rests with us. It certainly could be understood that way quite easily. And it's the impression that many people have. Sunday school to ask her young students, if I sold my house and car, if I had a garage sale, I gave all the money that, that was raised to the church and other charities, would I get into heaven? The children gave a definite no. And the teacher asked, well, why not? And one of them said, well, first you've got to be dead. <laughs> but you get the point about the Sunday school teacher's question. When asked about their foundation of their relationship with God, lots of people, if you were just to say, you know, what's the sort of basis of your relationship with God, would say something like, even, well, I try to be a good person. I, I try to obey the Ten Commandments and live by Jesus' golden rule. Okay. By instinct, many of us feel that we have to do something. We have to achieve something in order to be accepted, even by God. Now let's test that understanding of our covenant relationship with God as we hear today's scripture lessons. The first from Genesis, in which God calls Abram into covenant relationship, and the second and third from the book of Exodus, both of which follow God's rescue of the Hebrew people when they left state slavery in Egypt and fled into the wilderness. And as we hear these readings that Barb brings us, ask yourself these questions. Who initiates these covenant relationships? Who takes the initiative? What does God promise? And what is asked of the people in response? What is asked of us in response? The readings today are from the New Revised Standard Version of the Holy Bible. Genesis 12, 1-3 Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Exodus 19, 4 to 6. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, 
If you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine. But you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. Exodus 20, 1 to 3. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Word of the Lord. It seems to me that covenant agreements in Scripture have two key elements. And here's the first. That a covenant is a gift from God in which God comes into relationship with and creates a bond of communion with God's people. So our loving God is the one who initiates these covenants by choosing or electing its recipients. And as you know, um, in the Calvinist or Reformed tradition, we are famous for emphasizing divine election or also called predestination. And right now, predestination is nothing but good news. It means God has chosen us. Not that we don't have a part to play, but initially God chooses us. God pursues us. God takes this critical step, not human beings. God doesn't wait for us to search for meaning and relationship, but pursues us. Remember Jesus' wonderful image of God in the parable of the lost sheep. It's about a shepherd that has 100 sheep and 99 are are safe and accounted for, but one is missing. What does the shepherd do? He leaves the 99 to pursue and find that one lost sheep. Friends, God is pursuing relationship with each of us. Covenant relationship through Jesus Christ. Now, in our first text from Genesis that Barbara just read for us, God initiates a covenant and freely chooses Abram and Sarai and their descendants as recipients of this grace-filled relationship. And God makes some promises That your descendants will be great, they'll become a great nation, they will be uniquely blessed, they'll be given a homeland, and through them, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Somehow, because of this relationship, everyone on the planet will benefit. Now, the New Testament makes numerous references to that single verse, finding fulfillment of that universal blessing in and through Jesus Christ. Now, notice that Abram does not have to do anything at all to qualify for this great privilege of having a loving and intimate relationship with the Creator. It's pure gift, an expression of God's grace, God's surprise gift love. And friends, it's the very same in the covenant with Moses and the Israelites on Mount Sinai. In the story of of Genesis, the patriarchal narrative, Joseph, and then later... uh, brothers of his, etc., even his father Jacob, had emigrated to Egypt because of a famine. Many generations passed and their status uh, sunk so that they became state slaves in Egypt. And in 
both of those cases, there is no explaining why God chose Abram and later Moses and the Israelites to become God's covenant people. There is no explanation except God chose them in love. That's all we know. So it was not due to any inherent quality, any inherent virtue that sort of caught God's attention. Rather, it is simply God's gracious and unexplained choice. Do you see how that lessens the burden we carry in covenant relationship with God? We didn't initiate it. We didn't earn it. We didn't achieve it. God simply chose us. And yes, we are called to respond. That's element two of a covenant, and I'll speak about that in a minute. What then about the Ten Commandments? What is their purpose? And actually, what about all of the 613 commands in the Torah? As initially understood by the ancient Hebrews, friends, the law of God was a good gift, a guide, a help. It was not a burden to be born. And with that understanding of the law as a gift, a good gift, Jesus contrasts how some of the Pharisees misunderstood the law of God and made it a tool by which people were required to redeem and justify themselves. In other words, if the law is a gift, is a guide, and we're supposed to, in thanks, try to follow it, that's one whole way of approaching the law. The other way is to say, you must do all of these 613 to become, perhaps, if you try hard enough, perhaps, acceptable to your creator. Completely different approach. So some Pharisees made obedience a required prerequisite for covenant relationship with God. You have to clean up your act, and maybe if you're good enough, then you can have a relationship with God. Jesus approaches the covenant in a completely different way and emphasized that it is grace-based when he taught. And these are words that often are recited at the table, and appropriately so. When Jesus, according to Matthew, said, Come to me, all who labor and are overburdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. The Pharisees made the law a terribly heavy burden that literally no one could achieve. But Jesus says, no, your relationship with God is grace-based, and that's what the covenant is all about. Notice that in these texts, God's grace-filled saving acts come first before any demands whatsoever are laid on the people. As is the biblical pattern, God's grace precedes God's command, often in the form of law. So in the Exodus passage, and this is wonderful, and this is sort of, uh, here's God speaking poetically, sort of, you know, Shakespearean divine language, when God tries in poetic language to explain what has just happened in the Exodus. At the Reed Sea, or the Red Sea, where the Egyptian cavalry is approaching, and those runaway slaves are going to be Discipline, perhaps killed in mass. This is what God says. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I love that. Wow. God reminds them that they had already experienced his power, his saving power at the Reed Sea. 
Margie, God's saving power. She's over here. Okay. So, Hosanna. Save us, Lord. And, and in, in these texts, God's salvation comes first. The people's response, their obligation comes second. God reminds them how they'd already experienced God's saving power. And God is pictured wonderfully as a mother eagle hovering over its young and bearing them aloft on its wings. That's the way God cares for us. The same word of grace appears just a few verses later in the preface to the Ten Commandments. Okay, um, how many of you know the commandments? Have you memorized the commandments in Sunday school, perhaps? Okay, I mean, it's a worthwhile exercise. They're important. Uh, they're important for followers of Jesus today. Calvin would say the third use of the law, it's, it's the guidance it provides us in life, is its chief use. Um, but not too many people may know the one-sentence preface which comes before the Ten Commandments. And here it is um, in two steps. So, Jiffy, you'd repeat after me. And I'm going to go to the original Hebrew, not the translation. I am Yahweh your God. I am Yahweh your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, out of the house of bondage, now I got confused. <laughs> who brought you up out of e- who, who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage or slavery? Okay, who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage? Thank you. Excellent, friends. That is so important. It may be just as important as all the Ten Commandments which follow it. That one sentence. It's the preface. It says first of all that before you even attempt to follow any of these guidelines for life, realize who is asking you to do so. God. It's a grace-filled invitation. And personally, I wish that there was a huge therefore after that sentence, before then the first command, you shall have no other gods before or beside me. And there's not. but But it's implied, I think, that our attempt to, to obey the commandments is an expression of our gratitude for what God has already done for us. It is not our attempt to achieve His love and grace. That's already been given us in the exodus and in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's already been displayed. God's grace comes first. Our obligation comes a distant second. Do you get that? It's really important It either makes the law a burden, a horrible burden, or a wonderful gift. And Jesus wants it to be a gift. And that was its intent, initially. Okay, excellent. (laughs) So the new covenant in Jesus Christ, like that covenant, comes to us not as a result of human effort or achievement, but as a result of God's own calling and grace. So it means that we needn't work obsessively to please God. Rather, we need to receive God's gift of grace by personal faith and then respond with gratitude through what the Apostle Paul calls the obedience of faith. Have you ever watched a high school or college basketball game, especially when the game is tied, there's just like a second literally on the clock, and the referee calls a foul? Okay, with one second left, that's not enough time to actually do an in-pounds pass, pass, shoot the ball, and get it in. So now the future 
the decision about who wins is dependent on that free throw shooter, the, the, the player that's been fouled. And so he or she goes to the line realizing that if he or she makes the shot, there'll be a hero on campus. Wow. Didn't you win that game? That was great. Or if they miss the shot, actually you usually get two shots, uh, they could be the GOAT. You were the one who caused the overtime loss to that other team. And that might be etched in that player's memory forever. So the player nervously bounces the ball. You know, everybody has a, a ritual that you go through before you shoot free throws in order to basically just calm yourself and put yourself in the right frame of mind before you shoot the ball. So the player nervously bounces the ball, tries to concentrate, and finally, after what feels like an eternity, shoots the ball, it goes in. The celebration begins. It was a wonderful book, uh, What's So Amazing About Grace, Christian writer Philip Yancey describes just that sort of situation, and he makes these comments. These two freeze frames, the same kid nervously crouching at the free throw line and then celebrating on friends' shoulders after making the shot, came to symbolize for me the difference between ungrace and grace. In ungrace, everything depends on what I do. I have to make the shot. The world runs by ungrace. Jesus' kingdom calls us to another way that depends not on our performance, but on His. We do not have to achieve, but merely follow Jesus. He's already earned for us the costly victory of God's acceptance. And Yancey finishes this section by, with this sort of haunting question. When I think of those two images, a troubling question enters my mind. Which of those two scenes most resembles my spiritual life? Which of those two scenes most closely resembles your spiritual life? Is it a life of faith based on grace, a covenant of grace, or are you obsessively trying to achieve God's acceptance through your own efforts? So one ingredient of the covenant is God, is it, it's a gift to us initiated by God in which we're called into a, a bond of loving relationship. The second ingredient in a biblical covenant are the obligations that we assume. Now the one thing required of Abram when he received the covenant was that he was to demonstrate his trust by simply leaving his homeland and beginning the journey to an unnamed destination. That's pretty scary. Load up the beacon van, but will I, will I tell the driver? Well, I'll show you. No map, no AAA triptych, no... no uh, uh, I, my, brain, my brain isn't working. Uh, GPS, thank you. No GPS. Just go. Just leave and I'll show you. Oh, yeah. That's not the way I like to travel. Man, I, I want to know where I'm going. Anyway, as long as Abram begins that faith-filled journey, he's responding appropriately to God's covenant invitation. That's all he's got to do is leave. That's it. Just leave. In Exodus 19, we discover a description of the covenant obligations as, as God tells Moses and the Israelites... Now therefore, that is on the basis of my prior redeeming acts, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, that's the law, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. 
What's God asking from Moses and the Israelites is their grateful response to God's grace-filled covenant. Two things. That they see themselves as God's own people. Friends, I hope that's the way you see yourself. As a member of God's covenant family in and through Jesus Christ. And second, God calls Moses and the people to be both a holy nation and a priestly kingdom. Now the word holy is a wonderful Hebrew word, kabod. It means to be set apart for God's use. So functioning as a holy nation means that the church should see itself as those who want to bring God's plan to fruition, God's will to fruition. We, we pray that every, day, every time we say the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the first request in that prayer. So we need to be God's agents, God's servants to bring about his plan, the consummation of God's kingdom, his reign as king. And secondly, God calls the covenant people to be a priestly kingdom. What does that mean? Friends, in any religion, I don't care what it is, a priest's job classically, sociologically, is as a mediator between ultimate reality, whether it's one or countless gods or even an, an impersonal reality, and believers. So the priest stands as a go-between, as a mediator. And to be a priestly kingdom then means that we are called today as followers of Christ to be people who mediate the love and knowledge of God through Jesus Christ to all people. It's no different than the mission God gave the Israelites on Mount Sinai. It's the very same mission. But now we have the privilege of knowing God even in a more intimate way through Jesus Christ, God's one-of-a-kind Son. So all of God's people are called not only for salvation, but also for service. We're enlisted in service. When you stand up for baptism and make vows, you are enlisting in God's uh, workers. You're becoming part of his workforce in the world, his mission to the world. Friends, like ancient Israel, the mission of the church today is also to mediate the love and knowledge of God in Christ to all people, which involves witness bearing. Now, Presbyterians aren't really big often about verbalizing our faith, but I think we need to be able to verbalize our faith. But we all know that often deeds speak far more loudly than words. So we need to bear witness in both of those important ways. May we live into that high calling as God's covenant people. Amen.